Squares fielder. He's gone to the dog. Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder, and uh, I'm here today with a couple of longtime friends of mine, and uh, we're going to do what we usually do when we get together, and that's talk dogs for about an hour, hour and a half here. Are you guys hearing me okay on that end? Yes. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting head nods. Okay, this is audio. I've... I've been told that I've got a real face for radio, you know, but the thing about it is <laughs> head nods will not work in this media. You got to speak up boys. Hey, it's <laughs> great to be with you. It really is. And, and for our listeners, I'm here with, um, a long, long time friend. I don't know how many years now it is, but Lindell price from Christiansburg, Virginia, and he's up in the northern part of Indiana hunting with another longtime friend, Brian Ruckman. And these guys have a history together that goes back all the way, maybe farther than 1985. But uh, we're going to talk today a lot about the 1985 UKC World Championship that both of these guys played a part in. Uh one of them sitting on one side of the desk and the other on the other side. And I think it's going to be a great story for our listeners. Um, I will remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by DU Supply, W Supply, your complete one-stop shop for any kind of hunting gear that you might need. And uh, we do appreciate Buddy Woodbury and all of his staff and crew out there at DU Supply that makes this podcast possible. Well, I want to introduce, first of all here, uh, the guy that uh, uh, won the 1985 UKC World Championship with a walker dog named Beaver Lake Magic, Mr. Brian Ruckman. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Steve. You're doing good, huh? Yeah. (laughs) You got the crops all in, the farming's all done, and uh, you're ready to do some coon hunting. We got it all finished up, so yeah, we're ready to do a little hunting now. All right, now did you did your boy Seth do all the work, or did you help him some? <laughs> no, I helped him, but this is his this is his first year being the operator. I I rented the farm out to him, and I just worked for him. But yeah. it was a fun experience this year. Yeah. Well, uh, tell me a little bit of history about the Ruckman farm. I think you, that your same family has operated that farm now for, for many years. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the original farm goes back, Seth's the sixth generation to farm it. And, uh, it was purchased in 1863 and we're not real big farmers, but we're pretty proud of the heritage and we've been able to stay in business that long so you know we have both had jobs in town and farm too and that's basically how we make it work but it's a it's a good way of life and a good way to raise a family well for sure now besides seth your son you have uh how many daughters do you and gwen have we have three daughters, and it's Valerie. She lives in the state of Washington, and 
Katie, she lives here locally, and Alyssa, they also live pretty close, within 10 miles of us. Okay, so you got four kids total, and how many grandchildren now? I got to ask when, how many grandkids we (laughs) (laughs) 12. 12. Well, I see why you have a little problem with that, because that's quite a few to keep up with. That's awesome. That's just awesome. So how old are you? Yeah, go ahead. She keeps up on all that, their birthdays and the dates and everything. So sure, she's got all the stats on that. I got you. I got you. You could probably quote me seven or eight generations on the pedigrees that dog I hear barking out there, but you can't remember all that stuff like grandkids' birthdays and all. <laughs> she she says I can remember a seed corn I planted 20 years ago, but <laughs> I can't remember all the birthdays. So <laughs> Okay. Well, just briefly here, let's go. Um, you what Besides farming, I think you were a uh, um, heavy equipment operator. What? Uh, tell me a little bit about your your uh, the job, your day job you had for all those years before you retired. Yeah, I was a uh, heavy equipment operator about all my life, and then I worked for a couple union companies locally here. And two years ago, I retired. I so. so your main job now is farming and coon hunting, right? Pretty much, yeah. And keeping that's, Gwen's honeydew list trimmed down. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's switch over here to your buddy, Lindell. Uh, Lindell, you and I go back at least 100 years, isn't it? <laughs> Seems like it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you've come up from Christiansburg to hunt uh, a few nights with Brian, right? Yeah, we're coming up, uh, came up for uh, hunting tomorrow night. Friday night and Saturday night. And, well, good for uh, you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, you and I used to pull those kind of deals there for several years. Didn't you? How, you and, and Dale Breeding and Wendell Bond and your boy Chris and different ones, uh, uh, David Linkus, I recall, and all used to come up and hunt with me just about every fall. How many years did you do that? Do you remember? Oh, probably hunting with you, probably... 10 years or maybe more and things yeah, coming up yeah. and visiting you. Uh, Wendell and Dale and David, they would come different years and stuff, but uh, we had some good times, real good times. Right, right. Well, just a little bit of bio on you, you and your wife, Connie, and I know that you have three sons, right? Right, right. Yeah. And you got one grandchild, I believe. Is that one right? One granddaughter. Birthday was yesterday. Yeah, I saw that on on Facebook where Grandma yes. was posting. Said it was her favorite granddaughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, let's true. break this down a little bit now and move this thing along because we got a lot to talk about today, and I know you boys want to get in the woods. All right, I, I'll ask you since I've got you here, uh, Lindale. Where were you born? How old are you right now? And where do you live right now? I was born in Christiansburg, Virginia in 1949. I'm 72 years old, and I still live in Christiansburg, Virginia. That's in the uh, southwest part of the state. 
Yeah, that's just a neighboring town to Blacksburg where Virginia Tech is, right? That's correct. That's where I retired from. I, had, I yeah. retired for 40 years. 40 years. And you were 40 in, years. in uh, maintenance. In the maintenance, uh, keeping that big college machine rolling right along. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't bad. I was uh, I had some good people and stuff with me, and and I really yeah. enjoyed it. Well, Tech got a pretty good football team this year. Uh, no, <laughs> they, no, they they about I think have won four and lost five, so uh, it yeah. should be better. But you know yeah. that's the way it goes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, uh, so you retired how long ago? Uh, 12 years ago, I was 60 oh, it's years been that old. Long ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, uh, you and I and our relationship at the registries and so forth, because, uh, there, that's a pretty extensive, uh, deal. Where did I, uh, let's switch over to Brian just a minute. Brian, where did, did you and I first meet? Was it at the world hunt or did I know you before then? I guess I saw you maybe at several world hunts before then. Do you recall? I, I guess that was when we first got to really know each other, but I'd I seen you at a lot of hunts, you know. And mm-hmm. I guess to really interact with each other was probably in 1985. Right, right. And that, of course, would have been the world championship that we're going to talk about. Yes. And uh, Lindell, <clears throat> where did you and I first meet? I would say, Steve, it was at our hunt club where you used to come down and uh, show dogs, hunting our qualifying events and all and things, and uh, uh, that was uh, quite a few years ago. Yeah, it was quite a few years ago, and I always enjoyed going down to Christiansburg to the hunts that you boys put on there. I didn't want to climb that mountain there at the club or hunt back up there like you you did for so many years but yeah you guys used to really put on some nice hunts back there and that was before my UKC days but then when I went to work for UKC and uh, I think I probably came down there for an RQE or two maybe but I can remember being really relieved in 1983 when I went to my first walker days and uh, I was just new with UKC, and it was at Rushville, Indiana. I remember George Yazel was the president of the Walker Association at that time. But I was just really relieved to see you and Connie because there was somebody from back home that I knew, familiar faces and all. So that, it, I guess it just suffice to say that we've known each other for an awful long time. And, yeah, uh, and... Yeah, you and your father and your mother and your brother, and it's it's been a great relationship, Steve. Well, it has for sure, and I'll tell our audience, you know, I mean, over the years I've had lots of friends, I mean, faces that I knew when I walked in a room I could say hello, but there's, uh, on one hand, I can count those best friends, and, and uh, you, of course, are one of those, so... Um, I've always enjoyed our friendship for sure. Well, what about the two of you guys? Did you first bump into each other at the, at the World Hunt? Lindell, when do you first remember meeting Brian? It was at that World Hunt, and uh, 
I was chosen as one of the field reps to go out with uh, Sid Underwood and um, gentlemen from uh, out next to Illinois on the final cast. Was it Johnny's? No. No? No. It was on the last cast there at that World Hunt. So that's when you kind of really got got to know each other in in a sense and and yeah. now well um uh, you know i um i can remember that world hunt so vividly so many things about it and we're going to get into that here in just a little bit but i just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of background of who you guys are and and all and you know we we get on social media now i i used to say i could walk in a room just about anywhere at a coon hunt across the United States. And I'd know 70, 80% of the people in that room. And I could, I could say hello to them by name. And now I look, <laughs> I just get on the PKC page, for instance, and look at the names of the judges. And I worked for PKC for six or seven years. And I don't even know who the, the judges that they're using on these casts at the World Hunt. I mean, it's just all, just about all new names now. Uh, but there was a time when, you know, there was just uh, quite a, quite a fraternity of us that were, I guess, pretty much the same age back in those days. I know I'm older than, than either one of you. I just had my 75th, but, uh, we lived through what I call, and and what we're going to be looking back at here on this podcast is what I call the golden age of coon hunting as far as competition hunting was concerned. I know that nowadays the entry fees are high and the rewards are high at some of these hunts and there's an, a group a small group of people that are participating in those hunts and that's what's making the big news but there was a time when you could walk onto a fairgrounds at walker days for instance you'd you'd have to park down the road you know to get in and when you walked in the room you would be uh shouldering in between people to walk over and get a cup of coffee and do you all remember those days yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, for sure. It's changed. It's changed an awful lot. Well, let's, you know, we're coon hunters, all of us. I think uh, sometimes I tell people that they're going to take away my coon hunting card uh, for lack of use. You know, here, since I've moved to Florida, it seems like uh, it's getting harder and harder to get out with the dog. But we've all been uh, coon hunting for a very long time. Brian? When, what's your first earliest memories of coon hunting? Oh, memories of going with my dad, and he hunted with uh, Orville Tuggle and a man named R.D. Smith, and I remember going with them, and I wasn't very old or very big then, and I can't imagine that good... big part. No. <laughs> You've always been a big man as long as I've known you. <laughs> Yeah, I was just a boy then. So, but yeah, it, it was fun. I enjoyed it, and they had pretty good dogs. They usually treed quite a few coon, and I liked it. So you just tagged along with your dad, and we'll uh, take a moment to remember Dwayne Ruckman. He was such a great, great guy. Always enjoyed talking to him everywhere I met him, and I got to work with him. Uh, 
pretty closely in the years I was with UKC because he built all the trophies for us. Uh, he was there at uh, Imperial Trophy, but uh, so anyway, your dad was 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 your dad a pretty dedicated coon hunter? I mean, did he hunt a lot? Hunted an awful lot when he was young, and mm-hmm. them guys uh, hunted real hard through the season, and they treated a lot of coon, and they used to go. One week in the fall, they'd go up to Birchwood, Wisconsin, and hunt with a guy up there. And also, uh, they used to go to the world hunt every fall back in them days. But well, as, that would have been the ACH. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think that was the ACHA world hunt even occurred back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had stories of some of the guys he hunted with. He he drew James Birch at one time and used to tell me about that. And uh, I just grew up around it, listening yeah. to him. And I, I listened to him tell a lot of things that Orville Tuggle did and different ideas that he had. And it just always stuck with me. Uh Orville had something to do with winning in some of the early Walker days or something. What what do you remember about Orville? The, the first UKC sanctioned Walker days, I think it was in 1957, he won it. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, uh, what's that, 75 years ago or something like that? I don't know. I uh, I didn't do this new math, but uh, I only It'd be went sixty. So. Yeah, I only went about a mile long to school. Time ago. So, yeah, <laughs> long time ago. Well, so but your earliest memories then are going along with your dad. Now living up there in northeastern Indiana, the way you do, uh, you've always had a good coon population up there, because uh, I would say because of the farming. Is that correct? Uh, pretty good, good feed source, you know, all the corn and yeah, they, they yeah. flourish here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to, uh, ask you, well, let's go over to Lindale just a minute and we'll kind of play this thing like a tennis match. Uh, what were your earliest memories of coon hunting Lindale? Well, my father to start off with, he was a fox hunter. And I'd go fox hunting with him, and I got tired of just listening to dogs run. And my brother, he was a coon hunter, and uh, I started going, the first time I ever went coon hunting was with him and Willie Davis. And they kept me out the biggest part of the nights, but I loved it. Next week, me and Willie and my brother Colby and uh, two other gentlemen uh, we went in the big mountains there at the house and, uh, we went in there at seven o'clock and got back at seven the next morning. And I knew right then I was, I was hooked, you know, from, and from then on, it's just been a love of my life, and a pure, pure pleasure to do what I do. You know, I guess for the guy just starting out on this journey, I like to call it a journey. That's what I named my book, A Coon Hunter's Journey. Uh, 
it's hard to express to somebody who's never done it just how much enjoyment that you really get out of these dogs. You sure don't make any money at it. I, You know, even I guess if you're out there now hunting for some of these gigantic purses, by the time you tally up all the miles and all the motel bills and the greasy cheeseburgers at the truck stops, you're <laughs> probably not going to have a whole lot to show for it. But those guys, I'm sure, do it for the same reason that we do. They love it. They enjoy what they're doing. But for me, you know, it was tagging along with my dad. That was the thing. I, I was my dad's shadow when I was a kid. And, of course, you couldn't separate home and fielder and do- and tree dogs. You know, they were just, that was ingrained in his DNA all the way back to 1920 when he was born in Tennessee and very shortly you know my dad's stories about laying in bed at night and listening to the neighbors old uh, coonhound trailing up Piney River you know and couldn't go to sleep because it excited him so much just listening to those dogs and and then his parents telling him and his older brother Phil well you can go coon hunting and you carry the lantern here, but you can't get out of sight of the house. Well, the house set up on a bluff, and and you could see the river bottom. And they could, as long as they could see that lantern down there shining back from that river bottom, that was okay. But the boys couldn't go any further than that. That's when they were real small. And then, of course, you know they it. But the point being that this thing just kind of gets next to you and ingrained in you. And then you start meeting people and and then you start having these dogs that you like and they start making an impact on you. And then, and I think that's a good segue into what I want to ask you next about is some of your favorite dogs. Now we know magic and we're going to talk about magic, but besides Beaver Lake magic, Tell me some of the dogs that you've had down through the years that you've really enjoyed hunting. Well, we had another dog called Diamond, and he was a real pleasure to hunt. And I did some hunting with him, won the Michigan State hunt with him. And he was a good balance hound. He could really work a track, and he could make it look easy. And got a lot of good memories with him and some of the hunts that we won. And then, what was the background on him? He was, uh, he went back to Sweeney's Diamond Gym. and Which was an ACHA world champion, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a grandson. But other than that, just country dogs. Nothing real big mm-hmm. name. Well, the name part of it really is not what I'm looking for. I mean, I'm just looking for, you know, dogs that you really enjoyed hunting or there was characteristics about those dogs that you enjoyed or maybe wanted to 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 carry on. Was there any dogs that met that criteria or were were did it pretty much start for you uh in a in a big way with magic? Oh, pretty much started for me with magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as far as the the traits that I really wanted to try to hang on to were there in mm-hmm. that dog. Yeah. So yeah. I'd say that was the start of it. 
Well, okay, Lindell, what about you down through the years? I know I've hunted probably with with the ones that would probably be on the top of your list, but uh, right. what was the first dog that you owned yourself that you remember that you that you liked? Uh, Dad ordered me a Walker female from Mr. Frank Oakley in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And I remember it came in on the train there in Blacksburg. Uh, and everything that I've got now, I can track back to that old female. Uh, she wasn't the best thing in the world, but she was a start. Uh, but as time went on, I was hunting with Wimpy Wright in Hillsville, Virginia, and he had an old dog called Drum, and I ended up purchasing that dog. And he was a Carolina Casey bred dog. And... I was, he was a straight hound, and I, ever since, I've line bred from that dog up to this day. I'd go out, come in a couple times, and then I'd go out one, then come back in, and it was just something, they were straight, uh, they wasn't mean, good track dogs, and good tree dogs. They were just a good, solid, balanced dog, and everything that I've got now I can track all the way back to that Walker female that I got in Pennsylvania back in '64. Mm-hmm. And now, and like how I said, was she I, bred? Do you? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you? How was she bred, Lindale? Well, she had. She was very, very close up on old uh, uh, Finley River Chief. Uh, she had uh, in back in her background. She had dogs like bluegrass moos again different dogs like that uh what was it reds red something i forget what that line of dogs but she was just an old timey early registered walker dog as far as her pedigree was concerned i see and, and uh, about what year would that be, about what year would that have been when you uh had her well i got her i got her in, i got her in 64 that's when I got her. Okay. And right. Well, uh, when and okay, after her, then what other dogs can you recall? That well, you, you know, you I, like particularly? I really liked, yeah. Well, my old drum dog and my old KC dog, it was out of drum. I really, really liked those dogs because they were the same type of dog. And then as I progressed on up through other good dogs that I liked and things, then I got to my old cougar dog, which I think he's 12 years old and still trend coons. There's a veterinarian there in Parisburg, Virginia that has him now. But it's just in the dogs that I've got now, me and my nephew and things, uh, but I've continued to line breed. I'll go out mm-hmm. a couple of times and then I'll then I'll come back. I bred old Belle like she won the Southeastern in '97, I think it was, and uh, I took her and and I'm a believer in breeding to family dogs. I don't want to breed my female to a dog where there's just one good dog out of a cross. And mm-hmm. I picked the Frank dog down in North Carolina, it was out of ta- uh, Sackett Jr. And I bred her to him four times. And she died before the last litter was was, bred, was raised. And uh, those dogs, I'm still had my old 
old ring dog and a few others that, that I really, really liked and things. And so uh, now uh, we've I've taken the same dogs and bred her like to Ray Skeens' female or took Ray Skeens' dog and bred her to my nephew's dog, which was a full, which was a half mate to my old cougar dog. And so just continuously going back and forth, in and out mm -hmm. and stuff, you know. I'm yeah. a firm believer it's sort of yeah. like a tree. If you go up a tree... And you cut the limbs off, you can't you can't get back to the main part of the tree. And it's the same way with dogs. If you keep breeding out and breeding out and breeding out, you can't get back to your base of your hounds and stuff where you started and things. And that's just always been my belief. Well, I know yeah. in the breed that I've followed for so many years, as you guys well know, was the plot breed because my dad was a dedicated plot man since 1954, and I, that's what I had at home to hunt when I started out. So I stayed with them for many years, you know. But people will come to me now and say, well, who's breeding? the? You know, where can I get some Cascade bread plots? Or where can I get some Weems bread plots? Or where can I get some Brandenburger bread plots? I said, listen— you know, those fellows bred plots, and they did a good job at it. But when they passed away, those dogs went with them, you know, unless somebody uh, uh, specifically kept that bloodline and bred. But then they became a, a Jones or a Smith or a Brown bred dog. They they were no longer Weems or, or Brandenburger. So, you know, uh, th that's something I think that people fail to realize but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people out there that hear about these dogs like Beaver Lake Magic that we're going to talk more about. And they want some of that. You know, where do I get it? Well, you know, if you get on social media and you read, you know, and you'll still see these people say, well, papers don't treat coons. I don't care what the bloodline is. You know, I just breed old handy, old ready, and I'll have a dog and I, I'm a superstar trainer and i can make a coon dog out of a collie and all that but it <laughs> it doesn't work that way does it fellas no now the the thing uh, uh about that is i agree that the papers don't treat dogs i mean treat coons but you can go back deep in those papers and you can check and see their habits and everything coming forward and what they did what their instincts was were they trashy whatever and that will give you a sign of what's possible to come from your pups yep for sure well now brian i see and i follow you on social media and i know the dogs i've seen this harvey dog that you've got you had you and gwen had him down here in florida i really enjoyed seeing the dog he's a he's a beautiful hound he's a great they're just the right size i believe and and there's so many good things about him but when you talk about the dogs and you talk about your dogs you know you like to follow a specific path from these old dogs what were some of those old dogs of yesteryear that you like to continue to see in your pedigrees up close well, the number one thing I would say would be a dog that's some type of layup artist. 
that don't have to have a good track and can tree a lot of coon maybe off of bad tracks or no track. So that's one trait and talking about keeping what you had. The traits is a lot of what I look at. And these last well, generations, there's, there's got to be some traits there that you were familiar with in the past if you've got what you're wanting to have. Well, actually, what my question is, though, and I know, and we'll explore that more, but what old dogs back there do you believe that carry down through your dogs today that you, you know, that you, you like what they produce and, and why do you still want to see them in your pedigrees? Well, when you talk about dogs like Merchant's Banjo 2 and Johnson's Banjo and Fendi River Chief and Shepherd's Sunny Boy, a lot of that was the foundation of a lot of this Walker breed. And I hunted with some of them dogs when I was young. And I remember the noses they had and the balance they had and the tracking ability they had. And so that's just a few of the dogs that I can mention right now that there was traits there and them. I'd like to be able to keep something that resembles that. I just had a recorded a, a podcast with somebody that I believe both, I know that Lindell knows him and I believe, uh, Brian, that you know, Lee Currens from South Carolina. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. Lee is the only guy I know that judged a Grand Night Champion cast consisting of two dogs, House's Chief and Merchant's Banjo 2. Now, how many guys out there under the sound of our voices today have heard about those dogs and would like to be able to go back in time and be on that cast and see those two dogs? They were half-brothers. Both of them were sired by Johnson's Banjo. And both of them made a, a big footprint in, in down the creek, you know, of coon hunting down through the years. Uh, and there was a reason, I think, because not only were those guys that owned those dogs, Joe House, he was a an advertiser and a flamboyant kind of guy and put his dogs out in front of the public. And, and so was James Merchant, you know, having won the world hunt three times and 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 all and Joe Joe was I mean uh, Jim was such a an outspoken uh, bigger than life kind of guy and then of course you'd have to include what I call the big three of that era and time would be John Monroe was in there once he got Finley River Chief and and those dogs the Finley River Spot that he won the ACHA World Hunt with and you know th those guys. Um, they weren't all just talk. They weren't all just uh, ads in the magazine to sell stud fees and puppies. They had something. Now, I don't know how much they knew that they had, what they had at the time, but I got a sneaking suspicion that they did know what they had and, and uh, weren't afraid to put it out there in the public. But, you know, those dogs that come in Finley River Chief, of course, you know, was huge, huge in the history of of uh, coon hunting, and uh, and also you know we're hunting a different kind of dog today, though. 
the general public is not these younger guys that I mentioned that I don't know their names uh, are enjoying it. Hopefully they're enjoying coon hunting, but they're coon hunting a completely different style than the type of hunting that we did back in those days. And they're hunting a different kind of dog that was winning back in those, uh, those days, you know, and, and I'm not going to belabor, belabor the point about the, what we call ambush dogs and the dogs that hunt out of the world and, and like to get under a hot coon and, and put points on the scorecard that that's the goal. But, um, but times sure have changed. I want, we want to get into talking about the world hunt and all, but I also wanted to talk to Lindell a little bit about his experiences down through the years, because I think there's a great story about Lindell, about your experience in working with both the UKC and the AKC registries. And, uh, I know that there was a lot of good times that we shared and I imagine there were some that weren't so, so enjoyable, uh, at times, but when did you first start working for UKC? You were a field rep for them, right? Right. Uh, you and Fred Miller called me up. That was oh, probably a year after the Princeton World Hunt, the Hunt World Princeton. And, uh, that Dave was Goodman, 84, which, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Dave Goodman was uh, the field rep, and he was getting out. And uh, y'all asked me to come on board which is a great, great honor to me. Uh, and like I said, I was at the hunt, world hunt that uh, Magic won. And those 20 years that I was with UKC, it's unreal the number of friends that I met at those hunts and those shows that I'm still friends with today and I cherish very dearly. Uh, and, uh, and it just... Come on down. We had a lot of great years with UKC. Great people, good people to work with. And then you had the opportunity to leave uh, UKC and went to PKC. And I stayed with UKC. And uh, we would come up. I'd come up two, three, four times a year and hunt. And, and we continued our friendship. Great times. And, and it was Fantastic. And then uh, you left PKC and went to AKC and asked me to come along with you. And uh, I went and I was working at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And uh, I stayed five years. When I retired from Tech, I retired from AKC for the simple fact is I wanted to retire. I wanted to get out. But those five years with you and Jimmy Phillips and Jerry Maul and all the rest and all the other great people that we met and I met, going helping with the St. Jude's event was something that, that I'll remember forever. And it was just a time for me that uh, it's been a big, big plus in my life and it's made me appreciate stuff a whole lot more for the simple fact is you'd run across people that had not that had struggled through life and stuff and you felt like you had an opportunity to, to help them and and all of that it's it it was a great thing for me 
Well, you know, and, and of course, Brian, <laughs> and and we definitely are going to get into the main event of this, this podcast and to talk about the 85 World Hunt. But, you know, I don't think people understand, you know, that that walk into a, a coon club somewhere or into the, the headquarters at Walker Days or whatever, uh, what goes on behind the scenes. And it's a very, very busy activity to put on a major event. There's a lot of things going on all the time, but there is such a, I, I liken it, and we're recording this today on Veterans Day. And I'll just pause right here to say, all you veterans out there, we appreciate you tremendously in the sacrifices that you've made. As they say, all gave some and some gave all. And we de- definitely honor our veterans. But, you know, I liken that uh, cruise that we had, those groups of field reps. I know at UKC we had 15 of us. Uh, that worked together at any one time. And then, of course, at, at AKC, our group was smaller, but we were extremely close, uh, and we worked together, and we did everything uh, that we could to help each other with the goal of putting on a good event so that those guys that drove all those miles that came in there would good have a good hunt, have a good time, and win or lose, they could go back home and say, you know, that was worth the effort. But you were certainly a huge part of anything that I did down through the years uh, in my work with the registries, except for the PKC years. Uh, and you were there with UKC, or with UKC at that time, still doing what you do. Uh, you judged. I, I remember as we would start a major event like the, the Winter Classic in Georgia, uh, uh, that's now out in Mississippi and, and some of the other major events, I kind of, you were my, my go-to guy for the bench show. How many of those major shows like that do you recall? Uh, probably can't name them all, but just some of them. Well, I, I judged five world shows. I judged the first one. And then there's a couple more down through the ranks and stuff. I've judged the first show in Texas, uh, forget what American Heritage was. Show, American, American Heritage, Heritage. Yes, uh-huh. yes. I I've judged the uh, uh, all breed show, all dog show up in Kalamazoo one year. The premiere uh, there, right? Mm-hmm. I judged many uh, Walker's Days, English Days, different things like that through time, and it. Uh, it was very, very enjoyable for me. It's something that as a kid or even coming up that you would never think that somebody like me that came from an area like I did, which was all country, would ever be lucky and fortunate enough to uh, be fortunate enough to be able to do what I've done as far as enjoyment. Well, there was really only one. Well, there were two reasons. Everybody likes you, but the other thing is that you were good at it. That's why you got to do all those, all those jobs. And, uh, you know, what about, I, you mentioned a little bit, and then we're going to get, get, get on with it here with this world championship. You mentioned, uh, 
uh, a win that you got back with your bell female at Southeastern Walker days. Tell me a little bit right. about that win. That's that at that time was one of the biggest hunts in the country. And, uh, yes. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. Well, uh, my oldest son, Chris went with me to the Southeastern and we sat around there on Saturday evening, like you always do waiting for the draw. And I was lucky enough to, to draw Duke pro and at that time, he was the top of his game and, you know, and everything. And I was hunting a little bit, a dog called Bale. And uh, we went out that night and two dogs got scratched. And then I had old Bale and Duke had the black and tan feet, you know, maybe Dixie or something. And uh, it just turned out that the hunt, it, it went my way. And I had ended up 1,200 plus and won the Southeastern in 97. And then Bale was put into the Southeastern Hall of Fame. And it was just, it was, God, she was a good dog. She was, she was as good a dog as ever come down the road. And, uh, but it was a great time. And me and Chris had a ball. It was just, and it was great to have him with me. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I know we enjoyed it, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I sure hunted with Belle and remember her well. I can remember some of the woods we turned her loose in, even up there in Michigan. And uh, just great memories, man. And that's it. You know, it, it, that's the thing that every day we're making memories. And, and I hope our listeners understand that and will do everything they can in their power to get every bit of every moment that they can because there's going to come a time in life if we live long enough that we're going to cherish those memories. All right, Brian Ruckman, I'm going to put you center stage here, buddy. We're going to talk (laughs) about the 1985 UKC World Championship. Now, I want to set set this up, tee this up a little bit. In 1983, I went to work for UKC. That was my first year in January 3rd of 1983. All right. We had uh, the first world hunt that I intended was uh, at the uh, down at Mayfield, Kentucky. And uh, that was uh, uh, the first year it had been planned before I came aboard. And uh, a gentleman named... uh, uh, James Bogard won that hunt. John East was a partner on the dog that won that hunt. And and right now that dog's name's escaping me. Maybe you boys remember that dog's name. I, I can't remember it right now. But then the next year, 1984, we went to Princeton, Indiana. And that's the year you mentioned, Lindell, that you came to work with us. And uh, we that was the year that Hillbilly Mac won uh, the UKC World Championship on a rainy, rainy night. And uh, uh, he had, I remember the cast members there, but uh, Wayne Green was one of them, and Ed Yates was one of them, and uh, I believe uh, Russ Beller was one of those in that cast. I'm pretty sure. But at any rate, uh, Hillbilly Mike was the 1984 uh, World Champion. Then we come up to Columbia City, Indiana, up in the northern part of the state, real nice fairgrounds there. And that was the first year that we held a UKC World Coonhound Bench Show Championship. 
And <laughs> and there's a funny story about that because we were setting the benches up there on Saturday morning getting ready for the show. This was our first world championship. Everybody was excited. I was excited. I remember I was wearing a pair of khaki slacks and I was putting benches up out there and level them and all. And I bent over and I split my pants. <laughs> and I, I said, what on earth am I going to do? So anyway, <laughs> I got back, I went back to the room and, and I changed and all. And, and, uh, in the meantime, Fred Luber, we talked about field reps and what a close camaraderie we had in a fraternity of guys and what a character he was. I called him the silver Fox from Missouri. Do you remember at all, uh, Brian, uh, do you remember Fred Lubert, the red bone man from Missouri? Do you remember at all? the name? But that just the name. Well, he the name. he was a tobacco salesman, and he had a line for everything. He was a real character. And anyway, so he went out to a vendor <laughs> and had a shirt printed up. Lindell, I don't know if you remember this or not, but before the show started, he presented me in front of the crowd with this uh, T-shirt that said, I showed my A blank blank, and he didn't have blanks on it, at the UKC World Show Championship and, and gave me that T-shirt. And I, I probably still have that somewhere in the archives. But anyway, all right, now let's talk about this was the 1985 uh, World Championship. Uh, Hillbilly Mac had had won the year before, and uh, Brian, let's talk about this. I want to start out with talking about Beaver Lake Magic. How did you and Beaver Lake Magic get together? What was that story? Charlie Miller and I had been hunting together, and I bought a pup off of him originally that was out of his female that he bred to Miller's Rock. And, of course, Miller's Rock was the son of Banjo, too. And, and the pup I had was a real tree dog. But he was pretty quiet on track. But anyway, that was for my own dogs. That was my start in hunting. And so, <clears throat> Charlie and I were looking for a competition dog and made a trip to Missouri and went hunting down there at Buddy's stores. And he was, I think, originally from Oklahoma. And he's the one that found that dog. He called Charlie up and he told him, he says, I found you guys a dog. And that trip, Charlie just went down on his own and hunted with the dog. And I'm going to add this in there. In the, in the meantime, we had a walker female that was a first-and-first first type dog, and I'd just taken her to a UKC hunt at Albion, Indiana, and she was getting about all the strikes and all the trees. And Charlie called me when he was down there looking at these dogs, and he was talking about this type of dog and that type of dog. And I told him, I says, if you can find one, Charlie, 
we really need one like old lady. I said, I just scored 1,300 and some points with her last night in a hunt up here at Albion. I said, she could pretty much dominate on both ends. And make a long story short, he hunted with Magic down there, and he brought him home, and he was a lot like it. He was a first-and-first first type dog, and it was pretty obvious that he was going to be some type of winner back in them days. Well, how old was he when you you guys bought him? Two years old. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so you brought him home. Tell us about your first experiences hunting with him and the first some of the first hunts you put him in and, and you know, just the, the whole backstory. Well, the first winter he was here, my dad and I hunted him. And if he had a fault, which really wasn't a fault, it didn't end up being a fault, but... The dog had more nose than he really had the ability or knew what to do with it. And he'd worked some bad tracks, and maybe you'd think he took too long to tree it. He'd, he'd about always get him treed, okay, but and pretty accurate. But the thing of it is, we didn't realize how bad some of them tracks were. And... We got to hunting with some other dogs and that type of thing, and we found out that some of them tracks was tracks that other dogs couldn't even smell. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he could tree some layup coon, and I'm talking good dogs, like granite champions that be in at the tree that he'd located and treed the coon on. And they were sniffing around on the ground and sniffing around on the tree and never made a bark and walk in there and see magic sitting there tree looking up and see the coon. And then we became smart about the whole situation that the dog just had a tremendous nose. So now, okay, let me jump in there just a minute. Now he was out of Beaver Lake lightning. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And what's the, the background right there? A little bit of those dogs. What, what was lightning out of? Do you remember? Lightning was out of Cache River Rebel, and Rebel was a, uh, I, I believe, a direct son of Banjo, too, and a grandson of Mercer's Banjo. And then on the bottom side, Lightning was basically Fender River bred. Okay. Okay. So you got this dog that you finally realized that he's got an extremely cold nose. Uh, how many, Yeah. Did, did you start hunting him right away in competition or did you pleasure hunting for a while? I didn't put him in very many hunts that young. And we had the other dog, we called him Diamond and I hunted him and then uh, Magic was about a year later, three, three and a half years old, and I had Diamond granted out. Once you grant them, there's not too many local hunts you can go to, so then I started in on Magic. And I didn't hunt Magic in the hunts very long. And 
he just showed me what his real potential was, and it was real good. And put him in a few hunts, and he scored some big scores, like, you know, 13, 1400 points. And it just kind of all went uphill from there. I just kept hunting and hunted him like a second job. And he was physically tough, and he could take it. And it seemed like the better, the more you hunted him, the better he looked and the better he got. So that's the way that all went down. Well, okay, I imagine you hunted him some there in the woods at home. But did how did the territory differ then than it does now? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how hard a hunting dog was magic. Was he a wide hunting dog? Just Was he just a thorough dog that hunted the woods out? Or how did he operate? In a big, deep section, he'd hunt clear through the end of it. And then I think he actually hunt on his way back, and he'd hunt about an hour. And then very seldom did he ever come back. It had to be a like a zero degree night in December <laughs> or January. <clears throat> yeah. But ordinarily when you turn him loose, he'd get struck and get treed somewhere. Mm-hmm. When you lined him up with three other dogs, were did he leave on the run? Was he quiet? Did he babble any? <clears throat> what, what, what did he act like? He would babble a little bit, and I broke him of that. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was a uh, good, quick, opening dog anyway, and sometimes if you turn him with a bunch or three dogs that broke real hard, he wanted to be in front, and he'd bark a few times going away. And nobody could get him broke of it, and I got him broke of it. And the way I got him broke of it was I just took him to a UKC hunt over in Ohio, and I asked these guys in the cast what I, about what I was going to do. And I told them, I said, if it's any problem, I won't do it, but I'm going to break this dog right here tonight. And I did. And really got on him hard and I brought him home and hunted him the rest of the night home here till daylight and every time he treated a coon I really made a big deal over him and that was the last time that he ever babbled in a hunt he was a powerful strike dog anyway he didn't need to babble but Okay, with this rule they got today, why they did just let him get away with it, okay? But you couldn't do that back in them days. And he got it figured out, and like I said, that was the last time he ever babbled in a hunt again. All right. Well, um, the next thing I'd like to talk to you a little bit about is how he operated in a cast of dogs. If you cut him loose, let's say we... We turned four dogs loose. Was did he try to get to himself? Was he content to uh, 
as we say, party with the crowd, or how, how did he operate there? He basically just went in and did the same thing he would be doing a home hunt by himself. He just struck trail and treed coon. And if they wanted to split, that was fine. And he'd go his own way and he'd be split too. Or if they wanted to go with him, that'd be fine. But like I say, he just did his own thing and the rest of them could do whatever they wanted to do. Well, you talk about him being cold-nosed. How did he handle a cold track? Did he keep the pressure on it and keep it moving? Uh, did he grind it out? How did he operate on a bad track? When he was a two-year-old, he kind of grinded out, but about time between three and four, he really got that figured out. And he might have opened on it. And if he got to where he wasn't moving it out to suit him, he'd shut up and be gone. And you wouldn't hear him, and maybe the next time you heard him, he'd be at the other end of a deep section tree. And that's the way he started operating. I see. Okay, well, let's go into uh, the world hunt itself. Where did you qualify the duck? What, he, was he already a Grand Knight champion when you qualified him for the world hunt? Yeah. We took him to... Uh, I believe it was Paulding, Ohio, to the first qualifying hunt, and he won his gas and got qualified at the first one that year. So that was in Paulding, Ohio. You you qualified him the very first one you entered, right? Is that what you said? Yes, if my memory serves me right. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So then. Uh, you knew, you found out, or you probably knew all year that the World Hunt was going to be in Columbia City, Indiana. And back in those days, uh, I know it was the next year in Marion, Indiana, in uh, 86, that we realized that we had a problem with too many entries. And we started thinking about how we we're going to have to divide the hunt up into zones and so forth. Uh, but in 85, uh, you knew the hunt was coming to Columbia City. Uh, I bet you had to be th- feeling pretty good about knowing that you might get to, uh, you know, you'd be able to hunt the world hunt and, and stay at home. What what did it, what was the process? Let's go to, to the first night of the uh, of the 85 world hunt. Lindale, let me j- jump in here with you just a minute. Is there anything that you remember particularly about that hunt before you got to the final cast? I mean, just the hunt in general. About the only two couple things uh, I remember, Steve, before the last night was uh, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of that week about this white dog on the fairgrounds and stuff. And I finally got to see what it was and things, which was magic. And the other thing, I think a couple dogs got buried up in some drain tile out there and they had to get a farmer to dig them out. So, hey, it was, it was good. <laughs> I, I remember that situation. That was Dave Saunders or Sanders was his name. And he had a, a dog that got into a drain pile. We ended up, our drain pipe and we ended up having to take up a, 
and pass the hat, I think, to get some money to pay the farmer back for about three rows of corn that we had to take out to get a backhoe back in there or something to get that dog out of the drain tile. So, yeah, I remember that, too, for sure. All right, Brian, let's, can you remember this hunt enough to kind of tell our listeners how it went? What about, okay, we started out back in those days on Wednesday night. Am yeah, I right? We hunted it all right there that week. Okay, how did Wednesday how night. did that start off? Yeah. You mean for me and with magic? Yeah, right? yeah. Tell us, tell us. You know how, how your Wednesday night, your first night at the at the hunt went, if you can remember. Went out there the first night, and Mike Moore, and I think it was Denny Miller. He was George Wilson's son-in-law. But they took us over there just west of Fort Wayne, somewhere northwest. And we treated several coon and magic one to cast. And so that was that was a good start. Had a cast win right off the bat. At that point, was that the night that we sent the dogs back out or did we have an individual night lindell you helped me with that i don't remember exactly how we how we did that did the dog have to go back and then hunt by himself after that cast win there was an i'm pretty sure there was another round because uh it was wednesday thursday friday and saturday with a whole bunch of dogs and we had to double up a couple nights and stuff, but I'm pretty sure that he hunted the second round the first night. Yeah, hunted again Tuesday night. Or oh, Thursday okay. night, I'm sorry. So you had to hunt okay. the first two rounds. And then went out and actually that night Kelly Grant judged that cast there and put us in good places and he won that cast and actually he's high scoring dog that night. So magic was high scoring that night. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, just keep it rolling then. Tell us what happened next. Then. Well, so Can then, you remember? Yeah. Then the third night, why? I think that was. I think. Is that when they made the top twenty cut? I don't remember, Brian. I, I tell you what, buddy, I know this has been a long, long time ago. And rather than having you just, uh, you know, try to ground out every single detail, just take us, you know, the high spots that you remember till we got down to the final cast. Well, I remember hunting another cast on the third night, and he won it. Then we hunted him alone, and he scored, I think, 603 coon. Or thereabout. Six seventy five, I guess. Six seventy five. And then that put him in the in the final cast. Yeah, which is on Saturday night. And that's right. where you two guys uh spent about three hours out there in the woods. At that time the hunts were three hours long, weren't they? Yeah, yes. they still were. Mm-hmm. Yep. For you Young folks out there that like these 30-minute hunts and <laughs> hour hunts and 90-minute mm. hunts, three hours 
Okay. What do you remember? Uh, Lindell, tell us what you remember about the final night of the, of the cast. Well, I was with Sid Elmwood and uh, uh, John East. Us three was on the final cast. And, and we was at the vehicle there on the road and stuff, and we was continuously listening back and forth of the dogs, you know, to, to try to see, you know, what we in our mind, like most people would do, which was the best dog, which best strike dog, best tree dog, so on and so forth. And I remember well, my brother told me before I came to Indiana, he said, if you see a dog up there that wins the world championship, you let me know because I want something that's a good balanced town. So, you know, I paid a lot of attention to the dogs and stuff and how they were doing and stuff. And, and when the world hunt was over and Magic was crowned the, the winner, I went home and I got my pulled my brother to the side and I said, Coy, if you want to breed to a world champion dog, I said, you need to go and breed to old Magic because I said, he's extremely good, balanced town, good mouth and all. And which uh, he ended up getting two pups out of it. And his son, Glennie, now is still hunting dogs that went back to that old dog out of Magic and, and has done real, real well with those. Thanks. So, but well, man, what, well, what a surprise. What a great time for a rookie, you know? It's good. <laughs> okay, Brian. Now you remember you've told me this story before because we've written it up in American Cooner magazine. And uh you tell me about this final cast. I want you to tell me everything you remember about it. Well, I remember pulling up on a dirt road out in the country and it seemed like we was going to turn east. And it took about a half hour. Everybody out there had to shake hands. <laughs> I remember all the, I remember all the handshaking ceremony, and I remember Russ Miller saying, "Well, I feel like a politician." <laughs> and so then we lined them up and turned them loose. It was Magic and Pac Man and the Stub Dog that Franklin May owned him then. That originally he came from Larry Donaldson, I believe. But they was both good dogs, and I I just knew Magic he could win if everything went the way it should. So I was pretty confident. And the first time we turned loose, why Magic and Pac Man went straight in and they treed together on a big oak, and. Stubb kind of went left-handed parallel with the road, and he treed down there by himself, and he had a coon, and our tree was circled. So that that was the first turnout, and we went to the second woods. It seems like we just went on down the road like another mile or two, and in a big standing cornfield, it was probably half a mile to the woods, and the standing cornfield turned loose. And we're walking back through there, and I hear magic open, and I strike him, and Russell struck Pac-Man, and never did hear the stub dog. And I remember walking through the corn, and... Pac-Man was, or uh, 
Pac-Man was way off right-handed of Magic, and Magic was off left-handed. And probably in the timber about that time, from the way it sounded. And then just all of a sudden, Magic just loaded up and come tree. And this is the way it actually went down. Why? All I did was stop walking, and Russell says, Tree Pac-Man. <laughs> and so I just listened over there, Magic's over there treeing all by himself. And I asked them judges, I said, can you hear that dog over there left-handed treeing every breath? And they says, yeah. I said, well, that's Magic. So I said, just tree him over there. And Pac-Man opened up another time or two running and so i said i don't believe pac-man's tree no more than nothing <laughs> and <clears throat> the judges says uh is he treed russell and russell says well i can't i can't really tell or i can't remember exactly what he said but anyway they decided to put a line on him and put the time on him. And he opened another time or two in about the same vicinity. And then I asked them, I says, well, it's going to take me 10 or 15 minutes to get back here to Magic's Tree. Can you send a judge with me? We'll go back here. And they says, yeah, Curtis Elburn will go with you. So we took off and went back here. And then I heard Pac-Man running some more. And we got back here pretty close to Magic's tree, and here come Pac-Man in there, putting her run over the top of us. And then he went in and treed with Magic. Never did hear the stub dog, and went in there and seen Magic's coon, and that gave him all plus, and Pac-Man had come into his tree, so that gave him all minuses, so that was 400 points turned around right there on the second turnout. And they wanted to turn loose again in there. Turn loose again, and I think Magic struck and actually come treed, and Pac-Man was right with him, and I just let Russell have the tree, and I just stood there and let some time burn down and treat him in there about three minutes. And Stubb was still no more nowhere around, so we had to wait to five and went in there and seen the second. <clears throat> so... At that point in time, then Glenn Hughes wanted time out. And we proceeded to go back across the cornfield. Never had heard stub. And I was pretty happy coming out of there with a 400-point lead over Pac-Man. <coughs> and we got back to the truck, and the UKC directors was there, and and uh, my dad was backup handler. And I asked them, I says, have you ever heard that stub dog? And they says, well, he's back across behind us now. And dad told me, he says, yeah, he, he came right up the road here to us. And he says, I think if we wasn't standing here, he'd have jumped in the truck. And somebody started walking that way. and. I can't remember who he said. I think it might have been Lindell. Told him, yeah, he says, hey, you got to 
stay right here. You can't walk that dog back down the road. And so they did. They just stood there and waited. And he went on down the road and went across the road and went over in there and got treed. Well, that was all after time was out. So we went to the next place and had a short track and a tree right on a fence rail, right where we turned loose. And it was just a jam up, all three of them. And I didn't get no hurry on that tree because them guys, they had the pressure on them. And they treed first and second, and I let them treed for a few minutes, and then treed Madge again when I never seen that coon. So I still had a pretty comfortable lead. And we went a few miles from there, and we turned loose in the woods that had a drilled bean field right behind it. And I think we had 40 or 50 minutes left to hunt. And they struck in there, and all three of them went out in that drilled bean field, and Pretty much burnt the rest of the time up right there, and the hunt was over, and Magic was a world champion. So that's the way I remember it. <laughs> Anything you can add to that, Lindell? Not really, Steve. It was just it was a first time thing for me. It was fantastic for me. It was a very good hunt, and. All the dogs were deserving, but they was one wanted, and that was all magic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great memory. And, of course, then uh, uh, in those days, the Purina Award for the Outstanding Night Hunt Coonhound was heavily weighted in, in terms of points toward the dog that won the world championship. And uh, later on, that kind of changed, and it created more of a race. Uh, where the guys were actually out there about every weekend running for Purina points. But that, uh, w by virtue of the win of the uh, the World Hunt, Magic also became the 1985 uh, UKC or Purina Outstanding Night Hunt Coonhound. Uh, Brian, what do you remember about going down to Williamsburg, Virginia, you and Gwen and, and – uh, receiving the uh the Purina award was that was that kind of fun all i can say is it was really really nice there was yeah. a there's a seminar there's maybe several seminars on saturday yeah and then what was it saturday evening and they had the banquet and right i I just got to say it was all first class, extremely first class, and we really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a real honor. It was a humbling experience. Well, I remember that very well, and one of the things that I did down through the years is have my picture taken by the Purina photographer with the winner, and I've got a whole collection of those. I'll drop a few names, uh, High Country Night Heat, uh, Owen's little Frank, uh, uh, the the red dog of Roger Shables, famous Amos, uh, bluegrass Amos, the English dog, uh, hardwood Dan, 
on down the list they go, and I have those pictures in my personal album here, and I get them out every once in a while and kind of just really relive the memories. But that was in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I particularly enjoyed that because you could go and see all the history that's there and all. And, you know, the folks at Purina really did a great job in those days. That would have been George Cook, I believe, it was in charge of the uh, – of the award program at that time, he and his wife, Susan. And you're right, they would get a local club to host it with the, with the hope that they would encourage local people to come out to the award so we could fill up the banquet room that evening. And uh, we'd start in the morning with seminars, and, of course, Purina would have their people there, and then we'd have special speakers. Uh, I think at that one, if I'm not wrong... I believe we had the president of the NRA that came down and uh, and spoke at that at that banquet itself, and his name's escaping me right now, but see his face. But uh, anyway, yeah, it, pardon Warren Cat Warren Cassidy. You are right. You're exactly right. Yep, he Good was guy. the president CEO of the NRA, and so it was a big deal, and. Uh, and the highlight of the evening, after the meal and all the speakers and all the the Purina reps would get up and have a little bit to say, especially the one, the Walker Breed, and of course that would have been John East at that time, uh, I'm sure. And it's probably, we probably had to keep John from telling some jokes that maybe you shouldn't have. And, <laughs> and John was quite a character. But at any rate, the highlight of the evening was the unveiling of the portrait by John Donaldson of the winner. And I'm sure that that portrait is still a treasured part of the Ruckman family. Is that right, Brian? Oh, it will be for me until the day day I die. It's right out here in the living room. We keep it there in the house. Yeah, Yeah, it's a treasured possession. For sure. And it was a, an original oil painting, and uh, we ha- would have an unveiling, and then that's when I'd get my photo op. We'd bring you, you brought uh, magic into the room, and everybody got to to meet him and and uh, come up and pet the dog and and all that and memories, you, man. That, that you you talked earlier mentioned how that. The hunts evolved, and I can remember, like, about 1980, going to a hunt up here at Columbus City, and there was a couple older guys that they were probably in their 60s then. That one of them looked at the other one and said, would you have ever dreamed that these hunts would turn into what they are today? And it was like the Hoosier State hunt, and there was over 100 dogs there to compete in it. And they were both in disbelief that the hunts ever got that big. And then a few few years later, UKC was starting to take over this world championship and then the Perino Award. And to really stop and think about it, that was, to me, that was probably the best it ever got. That was the heydays the whole competition thing. 
Well, I have to be careful sometimes because I sure, certainly don't ever want to boast about anything. But I always just say I'm thankful that I lived through what I believe were the golden years, the very best years of competition hunting because, yes, you know, the events were large. Uh, Lindell will remember we had the Century Club among our field reps for RQEs that entered over a hundred dogs and we would have a plaque made with the field rep's name on it, the location. And at the world hunt on opening night, we would call those field reps up uh, to the stage and present their century club membership plaque to them. And every year there for a while, it just continued to be more and more of those hundred dog hunts. And, um, it it's really hard for the younger people now to imagine that. Now there are a few hunts, and UKC's new tournament of champions, I think, is is really going to uh, bring in more dogs back into the UKC hunts, and uh, and I'm really glad to see that. But um, well, you know, guys, I mean, we have been at it here an hour and twenty five minutes, if you can believe that. But it's been a great visit for me. With the both of you, I know you're thinking about getting out there because tonight you're going to be out there in that, uh, in the dark in the Coon Zoo in northern Indiana. And, uh, you guys, I hope you have a terrific hunt. Is there anything that either of you'd like to say before we shut this thing off? Have I talked to you to death? No. Uh, no. Thank okay. you. Thank yes. you for everything you've done for me. Oh, and, brother, let's don't do that now. Let's don't get and, into that. And listen, we need to go to Michigan <laughs> one weekend hunting. Oh, that's for sure. Okay. We, we need okay. to have a reunion up there. Well, guys, Lindell Price, Brian Ruckman, the story of the great Beaver Lake Magic 1985 UKC World Champion. It's been a great trip, a great visit, and... Uh, as I always close these things off, you know, if you if you miss me, somebody says, where's Fielder? Just tell him he's gone to the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.